Recently, in our house, late nights have given way to early mornings as the little people in our homes have been a little off on their sleep schedule. Uh, when they wake up, and it's one or two in the morning, they usually will come downstairs, as we as kids would always do, to find their parents. Um, one climbs into bed, usually without much notice at all, until you kind of stir around and realize there's an extra body among you uh, in the wee hours of the morning. But our youngest can't quite get in, so when she wants our attention, she either goes to my side or her mother's side of the bed and pounds on the bed until somebody awakens. And if that does not work, then she accompanies it with a mommy-daddy until she gets our attention, and she knows how to get us out of a dead sleep. I share that because in many ways, Mark's gospel is that way. Mark's gospel jars us. It's, it's abrupt. It starts without much um, intro. Um, and I want to take a look at that this morning. There's an urgency to Mark's gospel. The rest of the gospel writers, as you know, take a different approach. Matthew and Luke spend time in the genealogies and um, pointing to Jesus' entrance into the scene, connecting the dots as to why he is the one that they have long awaited. John, on the other hand, spends time with the theological discourse, proving why Jesus is who he is and how he's tied um, from all time to God the Father in that opening discourse of John 1.1. But Mark, as he often does, gets right down to business, and he jumps right in, pointing immediately to the fulfillment of God's promises that are coming in Jesus Christ. And it's jarring because there's no real fluff to it. Um, Mark, as we see, if you look back either uh, in your Bibles or for those of you in person on the screens, we see there in verse 1, it just begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, and then there he quotes. In a sense, Mark just kind of abruptly catches everyone's attention and says, this is where the good news begins. The good news of Jesus, the Messiah, He's the one foretold of old, as you see here in Isaiah. He is coming. Mark continues, as we see with this abruptness and even this urgency, by then quickly showing that these words of Isaiah are fulfilled um, in John the Baptist, the herald of that message. And John's voice and John's uh, demeanor and everything about John the Baptist is equally as abrupt and urgent as John's or Mark's opening uh, to his gospel. His voice, John the Baptist, that is, rises above the lull and the dreams of life as they look for this Messiah generations down the line from when those words in Isaiah and many other words uh, like them had been proclaimed. His voice rises above the nightmares of the day of the religious and religious um, governmental officials of Caiaphas and Herod of the day who proclaimed freedom but really didn't even know where to point to where it would come or what it would look like. And yet John's voice rings out, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. It is soon to arrive. John's ministry bursts onto the scene as Mark captures it, catching many off guard with this message to be prepared, prepared for the coming Messiah. First, by turning back to God with their whole heart and being forgiven so that they are in a posture to receive it. Now, we do well to remember that in their day, they were not looking for anyone like John the Baptist. They're looking for a leader, 
someone who would emerge and call them forth. But John, in his role, uh, both because of the hand of God on him and his cooperation with that, and his authenticity and his austere nature captures the attention of the people. A people that's waiting and watching for deliverance that we in a liturgical tradition can understand. They followed a cycle in their year as well that would continue to keep before them a pattern of God's faithfulness and salvation history and what they anticipate and what they await. The chief moment, of course, that they would remember comes as God delivers them from Egypt, and they're looking for this second deliverance in the Messiah. As they pass through not just uh, the waters of the Red Sea into the Promised Land, but would pass through something else to get into this freedom of the days that they had long since craved and looked for after coming back to re-inhabit the land from captivity. Now bear in mind the rich imagery that Mark pulls forward, that John, calling them forth from the captivity literally and figuratively of their day, calls them out into the desert, and there they pass through the waters of baptism to prepare their hearts to receive the Messiah, Christ Jesus, where they will find freedom. There's an imminence and an urgency to this message of John and the opening of Mark's gospel that catches us afresh every time we hear it. And in many ways, it's fitting for us in 2020, of all years, to reach Mark's gospel. There's no fluff, there's no missing it, it's direct, it's simple, it's to the point, and it can't be missed. And as we prepare our hearts, not merely for an annual celebration of the Incarnation on Christmas, which we do, but as we're called in these days to the subtext of the preparation that will prepare us for Jesus' return, it calls us to consider the posture of our hearts and our lives as we look at these words once more. As we do so, in a, in a very familiar text to us, I'd like to prop up, if we could, um, this image of John the Baptist and look at the uniqueness of who he is and two questions that may arise for our preparation in our lives as well. For while John's role is unique, there was only one John the Baptist, there's also a uniqueness to your role in salvation history and the ways in which you're called to respond to it as well for both your own soul's health as well as those that you engage in your life. So the first question, I believe, arises for us back there in verse 3, which is um, quite simple. We see that John's voice is that one that fulfills Isaiah's words, crying out in the wilderness, um, prepare the pathway, prepare a highway for our God. And the question, as we consider our role, uh, both in our own heart and the world around us, in the abruptness of this season of Advent, is to ask ourselves, perhaps, what do we cry out in our lives in response to the hope that we possess and profess in Christ Jesus? Do we cry out anything about Him at all? Or is the silence sometimes deafening? Is it evidenced beyond just the mere cultural preparations that we make for Christmas this time of year? Is the hope that is in our hearts buried so deeply that it would never be found? Or is it shared in tangible ways in our interactions with those at work and in the schools around us, even in the oddity of these times in our neighborhoods, to call them forth from the nightmares of the times that we're in, 
to find that the hope they're really looking for can't be found in external things, but can only be found in something far greater. Do our proclamations digitally, which is where we live most of our lives right now, coincide with the hope that we profess? Not merely just in feel-good messages or memes or whatever that may be, but do we petition prayer requests? Do we share such passages as this? Do we give them invitations to step into opportunities as we have throughout the life of the church? Do we add to those cries of frustration, or do we ring out in hope in a very different way that the world sees it, just as John did in his day? I think one thing we're aware of as this year is drawing to a close is that every day truly is a gift. It's been more on our radar now than perhaps it ever has been. And in these days leading up to Christmas, which serve as a platform culturally where everyone is yearning for some sort of hope, and this year more than ever yearning for something to be set right, do we allow our lives to point to our unique role in our faith in Christ Jesus in our own day? What rings forth? What do we cry out in our lives in the roles that we play? Perhaps as we ponder that, there's more to ponder back in verse 6, if you turn there with me. We see there that John is described. Mark spends quite a bit of time explaining and describing to us the physical demeanor of John the Baptist. John, we read, is not winsome. He's not visually appealing. He's not a sight for sore eyes. In fact, one could argue he's one that makes eyes sore. He's not an image that is a winsome kind of celebrity pastor type. Um, he's, he's very much the opposite. And his um, message is aligned with who he is in every way, shape, and form. And it's compelling despite the camel's fur, despite the bugs in his teeth, despite the odd smells, despite the austere nature of John the Baptist that we can kind of let our minds wander to in these verses, people came out, came out from... Now, remember, we often port on this side of salvation history a lot into moments like this. Remember, they don't know what this Messiah would look like, and John doesn't even spend time trying to um, say who the Messiah will be, when he will come, and what form or nature. Um, the, the prophets have spoken insofar as they will to that, and John doesn't spend a lot of time um, unpacking um, how God will condescend in the incarnation. But rather, the only thing that we get about this Messiah is found in verse 8. In verse 8, we see that John spends time saying that what I have done with water, the Messiah will do with the Holy Spirit, namely baptizing them into something far more. Now, what that means is that something that for generations had been external to them, that they celebrate in their church year, for lack of a better term, in Israel, year in and year out, um, they look at these moments these leaders that God alighted upon a Moses to lead them. God spoke and put his words in the mouth of the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others. Um, God, in the spirit of God, had led them out by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But now something would change. This Messiah would not be external to them, but now would bring to them the spirit of God that had led them in so many different ways, but now would reside in them, fulfilling these words of Ezekiel and elsewhere that the word of God and God's law would be written upon 
upon their hearts, and it would so ignite them to something that would respond and resound in their lives that that would be the defining moment that they are looking for. John was merely preparing them to receive it, to receive the spirit that would so disrupt and redeem their lives, would continue to reform them as Jesus steps into the scene that would ring out for all of salvation history in the lives of those who respond to it. It's a message that jarred them and should jar us as well. For we who have received such a baptism would do well to reflect not only on our words but in our deeds that should align with our cooperation with the Holy Spirit's work in us. One that leads us not merely to just question, what do we cry out? What do we say and proclaim? But perhaps a second question as well, which is, quite simply, what do we live out? That our lives should indeed bear witness and align with the ongoing hope and change and reform and transformation that God is doing in us as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Sure, it doesn't mean that we're going to be as austere as a John the Baptist, but to the world around us, it will look pretty austere, and it should, and it should look different. And we do well to ask ourselves and pause as we look at how our lives align with that, to ask, do our choices reflect what we profess in a way that looks different? Do our conversations look a bit different? All the baseline cultural things that you engage in, hey, do you see the latest ball game, the latest this, the latest that? I mean, are we so immersed in everything around that they wouldn't see any discernible change? Or perhaps, no, you know, I kind of missed it. Um, why'd you miss it? Well, you know, I, I was at church. I was doing this. I mean, what, what is it that might um, look a bit different to the world around us? Not saying those things are bad, but just saying that are there discernible differences? Do we set aside time in such a way that the pace of life looks different? While the rest of the world is chasing the rat race, trying to build better, fill coffers, expand out, insulate more, we're continuing to press on and do ministry and mission and do things that just look crazy to the world around us. But to us, it seems crazy not to. Do we forego certain things, as this season of Advent calls us to, for a preparation that declutters our lives in a way that creates more room for the Spirit of God to move and work in us? We're called to be unique. We're called to be peculiar. We're called to prepare not only our lives, but the world for what we profess. We do well, I think, to recall this great passage from 2 Peter, that each day is a gift, and that these days that God has given us are toward that end. Hear them again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And it continues. So the question is, what do we do with the waiting that we've been given? What do we cry out in the waiting of the days that we've been blessed to have? And what do our lives show forth? Advent confronts us with an abruptness that the culture wants to make as a tidy four weeks in all of its cultural Advent calendars with a 24-day countdown and fun, you know, consumeristic things that you can get and prepare for. But true Advent, as Scripture proclaims it, 
is messy, and it confronts us with our humanity. It confronts us with things that are not right, and it asks us to make changes with our cooperation to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives for our soul's health, and so that the world around us may see, yes, indeed, there's something greater. And we are called to reflect on what that may look like, and it will look different. Let me close this story um, of a young couple that I met about a month ago. Um, they called us out of the blue at the church office, or emailed us, I guess, these days, um, to ask if they could converse. They are engaged with um, uh, Anglican Frontier Missions. It's a mission agency that specifically reaches unreached people groups in the world. And they said they wanted to just talk to some of our folks about um, what they were going to do. They're in their 30s. They live in North Carolina. They don't look any different than you or me. They have three kids, seven and under. And they told me that they had discerned a call to move um, all the way across the world in February, mind you, um, in the midst of all that's going on, to reach an unreached tribe in North Africa. And they were seeking prayer support. And so I spoke with them, and, and that's what you've been seeing communicated about December 17th. Um, they're They've sold everything, their home, they're living out of their car with three kids. Um, they're traveling around and just garnering prayer support. They're going to be in Texas in a few weeks. And it's incredible. Um, when you hear their story, which I hope you'll take advantage of, either in person or online that night, it's riveting. Um, not in any other way that it's infectious, their joy. Um, in a season like this, you want to go, do you know what's happening around you? Do you see all that's happening? And yet, it's not that they're oblivious. It's that they're so resolved in what's God called upon them that they cannot hesitate to respond. And so they're going to uproot their kids and their world in a few months and begin life across the world. Now, I'm not saying that's true of everyone. In fact, it's not. That's a unique call. But I think it is true that we should be so unique that our joy is infectious, whatever it is that God's called us to be. That we look different, we live different, we talk different, we um, raise our kids differently, we, we do things that look peculiar to the world, because it must, it must, for the sake of the gospel. So consider in these days what you cry out and what you live out, the ways that we proclaim that, so that our lives may too be a light in a dark place to the culture around us. It can come in little ways, the ways you scale back to live life differently in this season, to declutter. It can be setting aside extra hours for prayer over lunch or in the evening or engaging in some more regular study of God's Word um, or to pray for the needs of our nation. Ask God how you may join in and take small steps that our lives may be so peculiar that it calls others to find the same. The answer to God's um, answer to the world and the redemption of it is not in all the busyness and all the things that we kind of whip ourselves into, but an in obedience and a cooperation to the Spirit of God and the life of every believer in the ways that He's continuing to redeem us in all of creation. May we be found as such people, heralds of the gospel in our age, until the Lord's return. May our lives speak it, and may our words align as we live it to the glory of God both now and evermore. Amen.